Hey, thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace, it is our full conviction that as Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching and for correction and for reproof and for training in righteousness. We are committed to teaching the whole counsel of God that the people of God might be built up and that lost sinners might come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. exactly where it's found, um, but you, you know the, the reference or you, some of the scripture verses within this passage. And so as we're continuing this series looking at the doctrines of grace, these doctrines that have seemed to have caused much controversy, not only in our day, but as we look throughout history, we find some of these doctrines have uh, been the source of great struggle, division, um, debates. And, uh, and yet, often in history, it is through those times that God has brought clarity to the gospel for the church. And I was reminded, listening to uh, a podcast this week, that actually this year marks the 400-year uh, anniversary, I understand, since the Synod of Dort. And you remember, when we started this series on the doctrines of grace, um, it was at that time when these, some of these very doctrines were challenged by a man named Jacob. Arminius and their remonstrance, and so they were bringing some different interpretations of these doctrines, and so there was a council brought together pastors, scholars, um, teachers to hear what they were saying and to give a response to them, Um, and this was the early 1600s, I believe, and so as a result, these five doctrines were clarified, were put into writing, we have some of the confessions, the I believe the Heidelberg uh, Confession came as a result. Um, the Belgic Confession, if you correct me if I'm wrong. Some of these confessions came out of this time of debating, of looking at these doctrines, and trying to understand from God's word what are we to believe. Um, and so in, in, in time, um, you know, John Calvin's name got somewhat attached to them, even though he wasn't around, he was long dead. Um, but these doctrines were in many ways... Uh, I would say rediscovered, not invented at the Protestant Reformation. Um, They were not originated there. They were rediscovered as men looking at the Catholic Church, looking at this different gospel of works that was being portrayed and having to basically pay money and and this whole idea of getting out of purgatory. And and that was challenged by Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and some of the others began preaching, no, we, we, we must be saved by grace alone. It must be by faith in Christ alone. And the scripture must be our source of authority alone. And, and uh, began teaching that God is the one who saves according to his own purpose in election. And that, that man is, is, is dead and trespasses and sins, unable to, to, to do good apart from God's spirit enabling us. And we come to this whole issue of the atonement, of the cross, of the design of God in the cross. And we started this last week, um, which in our, the tool of acronym is our L, 
Um, we have covered total depravity and unconditional election. And then the L, as we've said with lots of them, the limited atonement is, is potentially misleading, um, definite atonement, particular atonement, that, that this idea that Christ in the cross atoned for a particular people, that there was a sense of accomplishment in the cross, that when Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it. He meant that the redemption for those whom the Father has given has been purchased. It is complete. There is now to, to have this redemption manifest as the gospel is proclaimed and the Spirit of God quickens men's hearts and women's hearts to the gospel. But at the cross, this work was complete and the price was paid as opposed to there being only a potential salvation in the cross. We looked at last week. Um, did Christ make it only possible that some might be saved, or did he actually secure the salvation of, of the redeemed? And, and we argued last week that he secured the redemption for all those whom the Father had given. And so we I want to expand that a little bit and look at some of these passages um, that, that many would look at and say, well, that seems to say something different. It seems to be more in a universal uh, sense looking at the work of Christ. How do we understand this particular aspect of the redemption of Christ up alongside these verses that speak of a very universal atonement or redemption? How are we to understand these things? And this, again, is, is a daunting task, but by the Lord's grace we will get through some of these passages. So Second Peter... Three nine, and in this chapter, this uh, yeah, this chapter, chapter three, um, Peter is addressing the scoffers that basically mock the Christians in saying that Christ will come and that there will be a judgment day and that there will be an end to history, that there will be a time when men are called to account and all things are destroyed and scoffers are, are mocking. And, and Peter is trying to help the Christians understand how to respond, how to think of uh, this whole um, last days that we are in and the fact that it has now been over 2,000 years and still Christ has not come. Why is that? Um, you've maybe encountered people in your life that, that, that think, oh, you Christians, you're waiting for this Messiah that's never going to come. You're, you're waiting for something that's not going to happen. And even still, there are mockers today that will say such things. And so Peter is going to help the Christians, help us understand why it is that God seems to be delaying. Why is there this time of waiting when we would think Christ would have come maybe after a hundred, maybe two hundred years at the most, but thousands of years. And this is what he says in, uh, we'll back up to verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on them will be exposed. And so we have this, this verse that speaks of God's patience towards you, Peter says, 
and that he's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Um, how are we to understand this? How are we to understand this in light of the work of Christ and um, what he accomplished on the cross? And I thought of a, a helpful illustration as we consider the, the cross of Christ and, uh, and how it, it is um, the instrument of God's saving. There is a picture in the Old Testament. You don't have to turn there. You'll recall this, I'm sure. In Numbers 21, 9, um, the people of Israel had disobeyed God and God sends among them fiery serpents that begin to bite them and they begin to die. And uh, Moses and Aaron and the leaders begin crying out to God, God, the people are dying. What can we do? What can we... There must be a way to, to, uh, to turn your anger from them, to offer them salvation from these serpents that are biting. And, and so God instructs Moses to build a bronze serpent and to post it where the people can see it. And then to tell the people, if you will look upon the bronze serpent, you will be spared. If you are bitten and you turn your gaze upon the serpent, God will spare you and you will be healed. And, and what seems like maybe a kind of a strange way to cure a snake bite at the time, we find later that this is a picture of Christ. This is a portrait of what Christ would do for us who are sick with sin and who are dying as a result. We know from John uh, 3.14 that that this is even referenced by Christ as pointing to him. And he, um, I'll just turn there and read it quickly so I don't misquote it on you. John 3.14, we find this very uh, picture referenced. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, Jesus said, the Son of Man. And verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So this serpent in the wilderness is a picture of what Christ would do. Now, as we consider the cross of Christ, um, this is helpful. Was the bronze serpent available for all the people? Was it available for all the people that were bitten by the fiery serpents? Yes, it was. It was there for all of them to see and to use. And they were commanded to look upon the serpent. And so in that sense, we could say the serpent was sufficient for them. It was sufficient for the entire, entire um, body of, of people there that were infected by these snake bites. It was sufficient and God was had given it for all of them. Um, then if we were to ask, was the serpent in the wilderness effective for all the people? Was it effective in healing them? Did it effectively cure them of their snake bite? No, it didn't. It, it didn't effectively cure all of them. Why? Because there was a condition. You had to look. You had to, you had to humble yourself. And, 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 and obey the word of the, of the Lord and look upon the serpent. And when that happened, um, you were healed. Now, the, 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 the bizarre thing is, is that some didn't look. Some were bitten 
And we find there in Numbers 21, they were bitten by the serpent. They heard the word of Moses. They knew where the serpent was, and they refused to look, and they died as a result of the snake bite. And so the, while the serpent was available to them, it was sufficient if they would look. It had no effect upon them because they refused to look. And so this is very helpful as we consider the cross of Christ. Um, that there, there is a sense in which, of course, we would say the cross of Christ is for all people. And it is sufficient to save all who will look upon it. But the cross of Jesus Christ is not effective for all people. Because it is only for those who repent and believe the gospel. It is only for those who are humble, who, who we know even further, have the inworking of the Spirit of God opening their eyes, causing them to see their own sin, to see Christ as glorious, and to repent and believe. And then the cross of Christ effectively um, cleanses them of all sin. And this is, this is helpful. Now, as we consider what Peter is saying, here, going back, jumping around a bit, sorry, in um, 2 Peter 3.9 then, we have this passage and I'll give you two, as far as I understand, two potential uh, interpretations of what is happening here in 3.9. How is Peter using this universal kind of language in regards to the cross? And, and how does that not contradict this doctrine that Christ atoned for all those whom God had given for the elect that we looked at last week? Um, so we see the, the promise in... Um, in Peter's passage here, there's a promise that he is coming, and, um, and yet we see God's patience, that he is delaying in his coming. And then we see the, the cause of his patience is motivated by a desire, Peter says, that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some would count it, but the Lord is patient, not wishing that any should perish, um, but that all should reach repentance. Some of your translations might translate instead of wishing, um, not desiring, um, not willing that any should perish. It is this, this same word. And so one, one distinction that is very helpful in considering these issues is when we talk about the will of God, um, there are actually different ways in which the Bible talks of the will of God. And this is somewhat strange for us because we are so finite. We are so limited in our, in our willing. I mean, we don't have multiple wills usually operating. Um, and yet, within the person of God, we find at least two main wills of God that we must be aware of that can be helpful when we come across this word in the Bible that are translated as desire or will or wish um, I think maybe will would be the, the, the clearest translation. We have what is sometimes called the sovereign will of God and the moral will of God. People use different names. The decreed, the decretive will of God and the revealed will of God. Two distinct wills of God that you must understand if you're going to really uh, interpret the authors of the New Testament. The sovereign will of God is just that. Um, it is his unchanging will. It is, it is what he has a purpose to accomplish from eternity past. 
and what cannot be changed. His sovereign will will come to pass, regardless of the efforts of hell, regardless of the efforts of man, what God has decreed will happen. And this is referred to as his sovereign will. We see it in passages like Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. And so God sovereignly decrees things. He sovereignly wills things to happen, and they happen. And we see this um, even reading through the Old Testament prophets. As God speaks against Israel, he also speaks against the nations around Israel. And he tells them what's going to happen to their nations. And it unfolds perfectly. And, and maybe even for you young folks, remember the story of Daniel in the lion's den. And, and Daniel, uh, through Daniel, God tells the, the, the wicked kings that they are going to be destroyed. And uh, kings like um, Belshazzar and uh, Nebuchadnezzar and, and these men. And as God tells them, it happens. And this is God's sovereign will. It is his decreed will, which is unchanging. And so that is one, um, one sense in which we, we understand the will of God. Secondly, the, the moral or the revealed will of God. This is what God has required of us. Most clearly seen in his law, his Ten Commandments. You shall and you shall not. This is God's will. It is his moral will, his revealed will. We see this continue in the New Testament. Um, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, tells us how to treat our enemies, how to pray, he says. Love your neighbor, love the Lord your God with all your heart. These are things God has revealed to us that are his will for us. But this part of God's will, this moral will, can be broken. Every day it is ignored by people. Every day it is left undone. Even for us who are believers, who have the indwelling of the Spirit, we don't perfectly obey all of God's moral will. We are in this process of being made holy, of, of being sanctified. And so God's moral will, in that sense, can be broken and is not always accomplished as He would desire it. Do you see the distinction? The sovereign will, which stands, which is steadfast, which is unmovable, and the moral will of God, which is revealed to us, which God requires of us, but is often broken. Christ being the only one who perfectly obeyed God's moral will. Um, one verse we see both of these wills working side by side, and you probably are familiar with this verse as well, is Deuteronomy 29. And you'll read this to you, and I think you'll start to see there, there are two wills even referenced here, that you have the sovereign will of God, and we have the revealed will or the moral will. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. An easy enough reference to remember, I suppose. It says, The secret things belong to God, uh, to the Lord our God. So there you have these sovereign, these decreed things that God has established that belong to Him. They are known by Him alone. Um, and then... Moses' writing says, But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. There you have two wills of God operating. The secret, the sovereign, the decreed will, and the moral will. And um, you might say, okay, well, what does this have to do with understanding the work of Christ on the cross? Well, when you come across a passage like 2 Peter 3.9, and you have God's will being referenced, what He desires, what He wills, 
One question you need to ask is, okay, what are we talking about? Is this that decreed, sovereign will of God? Or could this possibly be more along the moral will of God, that which he desires, but does not always happen as he desires? Um, that's a good distinction to have in your mind. And as we, as we consider this as well, I think it's important to note that God is not the author of sin, as we look at these issues. God is not the author of sin. He is not the author of evil. Um, it came into the world as the result of Satan deceiving the woman, her giving to Adam, and they freely eating, disobeying God, rebelling against his command, and ushering sin into the world. And God's design, his will for them, was to be holy and happy. That was how he made them to exist. And they freely chose to disobey. Now, of course, this, we, we go on, and I'm reaching the very maximum limits of my understanding at this point. As you say, well, God, of course, knew they were going to sin, and he had already set into motion a plan of redemption to deliver them by Christ and already had purpose to redeem a people from mankind even before it took place. And at that point, we just say, as Paul said in Romans 9, He is God and I am not. He is the potter and I am the clay. And there are certain things that I can't tell you, I can't explain to you uh, as much as I wish I could. So we have to affirm those things and then at times step back and say, I, I, don't, I can't go beyond that. Um, how he is not the author of sin and yet sovereign over sin and, and, and planning with it in his sovereign will. Um, we have to leave those things. So now, let me give you a summary uh, of some different ways someone might approach this passage. Someone might um, say, and maybe of a more Arminian perspective, again, that these titles, Arminianism, it stems back to those synods of Dort uh, times when Jacob Arminius brought some, some contrary uh, doctrines, and his name got used as labeling a, per, a particular uh, theological perspective, kind of emphasizing more God's um, or man's free will and, and it's man's choosing that, that uh, is the decisive act of salvation. So if you were to ask a more Arminian-minded person, does God desire that all people be saved? They would emphatically answer, well, of course, that's what Peter says. He desires that all um, would be saved, that all should reach repentance and that none should perish. And, and then if you were to ask them, well, if God desires that, if he wants that, why does it not happen? Because we, I think we all agree that, that not all are going to be saved. There are going to be people in hell and there are people already in condemnation. So why does it not happen if God wills it, if he desires it? And the answer likely would be something to the effect of, well, he desires more that man have a free will and that he freely choose whether to accept Jesus or not. And so what has happened is the will of man, this, this free will, uh, has become a really priority over God's will. Right? You, you have to affirm that. If, if the reason that God does not save all as he would like as this seems to imply, then you'd have to say, well, there must be something that's keeping him from doing that. And in the more Arminian position, it would be free will. It would be the fact that we must choose. 
And that is typically the answer. Um, so the summary would be, while God would like all to be saved, he's kept from that by a greater desire to protect free will or our notion of free will. Now, if you were to ask uh, myself or maybe a more reformed person in their doctrine, does God desire that all men be saved? Um, I would make a distinction. I would say, well, in reference to God's sovereign will, he will save whom he has purposed to save. In, in reference to that which he's decreed, there will be the full number of, of, of all that he has purposed in heaven. And yet, in regards to the moral will of God, as seen even in the creative design, I would say God is certainly grieved by sin and would rather men repent and believe. And yet they don't, because we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Um, and you might say, well, if God prefers that men repent and believe, if that would be more with his character, even as, as we find in Ezekiel, that he does not delight in the death of the wicked. God is not malicious. He is not laughing as, as people are, are, are going into condemnation. He is grieved by sin. He, does, he takes no pleasure in that. Then why does he not enable all men to be saved, you might ask? If he has the power, the ability to cause men's hearts to be changed by his spirit and to save them, why would he not? If even, as Peter seems to imply, this is a desire at some level, why does he not? Um, and just as, and I know we're getting somewhat technical, so try to stay with me, uh, just just as the more Arminian position would have to affirm a greater desire, namely that free will be protected, so I would say the reason God has not purposed to save all is there is a greater desire that is operating within the person of God. And we see it in Romans 9. We looked at this a few weeks back. Um, God could have saved everyone, most certainly, but he has purposed, as Paul says in Romans 9, 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared before for glory, even us who he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So God has purposed, God has decreed that not only His wrath and His justice be displayed, but also His grace and His mercy. And while He could have only displayed grace and mercy towards mankind, He said, no, I will show my wrath, I will show my justice, but I will also show my glory. And so while God in the sense, in the beginning, desired that man be holy and happy. As man falls, God purposes to display his justice in the, in the just condemnation of the wicked and to display his grace and mercy through the Lord Jesus Christ and those who call upon him. Um, this would also is a verse like 1 Timothy 2.4. Paul says, this is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, again, that might play into understanding that. There is a sense in which God is a saving God. He is a God who does not delight in the death of the wicked. But he also purposed to display his wrath and his justice 
in the condemnation of sinners. Now, that might seem wrong to us, to our, our carnal minds. It's like, well, that's, that's not fair. If he could have saved everyone, then he should. He, he must. He, he, he is obligated to save all if he can. But we must remind ourselves the shocking news of the gospel is not that God punishes sinners. That is to be expected. That is to be, uh, you could imagine from the angel's perspective, they are not shocked at justice. They're not shocked at, at a just and holy God punishing sinners. That is normal. That is to be expected. That is what happened to the angels. They knew nothing of grace, of mercy, only of wrath and of judgment, justly poured out on them because of disobedience. What is shocking in the gospel is that God has purposed to display His grace at all. He, he could have swept all of mankind into hell forever without, without having done any wrong. But that He said, No, I want to redeem a remnant. I want to display my grace. I want to display my mercy at the cost of my own Son. That is what is shocking about this message. Not that God chooses to leave some in their sin and to, to bring them into their just punishment. So that's a long um, way to, to possibly understand what Peter is saying in that distinction with God's will. But I would say even more likely and much simpler um, is... When you see this word all show up in the New Testament, we have to be careful that we are looking at the context because we use this word all in our language as well. And we have to consider the context in which we use it, right? To understand it. I might say, uh, for example, that, that Luke can fix all kinds of vehicles, right? I might say that and use the word all like that. Well, you know that I don't mean that there is no vehicle under the sun that Luke can't fix, right? You know that I'm not talking about every make and model can be fixed by Luke. What I'm saying is a, a large variety of vehicles can be repaired by Luke, right? So I use the word all, but it is defined by its context. And, and um, maybe another example would be, you know, at our house, ice cream is very hard to come by. And if there's ice cream around, it usually disappears very quickly. And somebody might go looking for ice cream. And I would announce, oh, sorry, I ate all the ice cream. Well, I used the word all there. Now, am I saying that I have eaten all the ice cream on the planet and there is no longer any ice cream available on the planet? No, that's not what I mean, is it? And I don't have to explain that when I, when I use the word all like that. I'm talking about our context. In our house, in our freezers, the ice cream is gone. And, and so this word all is, is somewhat uh, tricky, trickier than we might think, in that we need to be careful to define it according to its context. So now, is, what is Peter talking about? Um, well, if you look at what he's saying, he's talking to a particular people. The Lord is patient towards who? Towards you, he says. Okay, well, who is the you that Peter's addressing? Well, you'd have to go back to 2 Peter 1. And in, in 2 Peter 1, we find that it is um, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, 
by the righteousness of God and our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's who, that's who Peter is writing to. That's his audience. It's those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with his by the righteousness of God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to the household of faith, as he says in the first chapter. He's writing to those who are in Christ. And so he's not saying that God is patient toward the world here in the same sense. He's writing to the Christians. So if we understand that, and and you could even go further and say, well, who is he writing in his first letter to? Um, Because this is kind of a continuation of that first letter. And in the first letter, he says he's writing to those who are elect exiles of the dispensation of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God. He's writing to Christians, those whom God has purposed to save. And so as we understand then what Peter's saying here, God's patience towards you, you Christians, you who are in Christ, you who share in this glorious inheritance by faith in Christ, he says, God is not wishing that any should perish. Any who? Well, I think in the context, most clearly, he's talking to the Christians, any Christians, any believers, any of those for whom Christ has died. God is not willing that they would perish, but all that would come to repentance. That is, to me, uh, a very clear and likely interpretation of what Peter is saying. He's talking about the Christians. And his whole passage is warning the, the, the wrath that's coming against ungodliness. So he's not saying that everyone in the world is going to be saved, that everyone is going to be redeemed and and come to repentance, but it is this household of faith. So I know there are many other um, scriptures in the, the New Testament, but those are very helpful in understanding the context in which the words are used, especially the word all. You must be careful. And also understanding that distinction in the wills of God can be helpful as well. Um, And then we'll close with with one more, um, I think, just very important uh, truth to understand in trying to wrestle through this issue. Why do we have this universal kind of language used at times in regards to the cross? How are we to understand it? We read last week 1 John 2.2, He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And Jesus, in referencing that bronze serpent, would say, When I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. All people. And people will point at that and say, There you have it. The the, the sins of all people have been removed through the cross. But we must be careful. Um... When you're reading the New Testament, there is something you must keep in mind. That up until the coming of Christ, the nation of Israel was the nation of Israel. The people of God were the nation of Israel. There was no other people of God. There was no no other group that was considered to be part of this people. You became a Jew. You could do that. You could go through the circumcision and the ceremonial washings and you could become a Jew. But you had to be of the nation of Israel to be part of this people. Um, And so... When Jesus says something like, When I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. What they're hearing is, wait a minute. 
You're the king of the Jews. You're the Messiah of Israel. What do you mean, all people? What is this universal language about? It's not so much that every person be saved. It's that there becomes this this removal of the nation of Israel as the only nation through which God uh, identifies as his people. Revelation 5.9, we see this as well. And you might want to flip there. This, this language of world and of universal type speaking is demonstrating that God has not only come to redeem the Jews, the ethnic Jews, but all the tribes and tongues and nations. And you see the angels in heaven um, as they're saying a new song in Revelation 5 verse 9. What is the song? And it says this, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And so this universal language is not so much every individual person will be saved, will be part of that people of God, but it is this idea that that from every tribe, tongue, nation, every skin color, every language group will be represented there that Christ died not only for the physical descendants of Abraham, but for the true offspring of Abraham who believe God and it's credited to them as righteousness. That is what oftentimes this universal language is referencing. You have John the Baptist saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, this isn't so much every single individual person is going to be saved and redeemed, but every tribe, nation, tongue, and people will be impacted by the gospel. If you really really want to feel the weight of this reality, uh, of this Jews, the Israel nation, and the world. Um, flip to, to Matthew uh, 15 for a moment. This is probably one of the most shocking uh, kind of pictures of this in the life of Christ, which would be certainly politically incorrect in our day. Oh my goodness, you know, you could imagine the, the outrage that would happen if uh, this was to happen now. Uh, how politically incorrect Jesus is being. But you start to see the mindset and the understanding of the distinction between the Jews, the Israel people, Israelite people, and the rest of the world. Um, in uh, Matthew fifteen twenty one, we find that Jesus went away from there, where he was formerly uh, ministering, and, and he withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was cr- crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now this is a Canaanite woman. She is not Jewish. She has no claim of the people of God. She is outside of God's covenant people. And he answers, uh, the disciples, sorry, in verse 23, but he did not answer her a word. He just ignores her. And the disciples say, Jesus, please send her away, for she is crying out after us. She is... She is not backing down. She's not taking the hint. He doesn't want to talk to you. Go away. And the disciple, like, finally, Jesus, just do something. She's driving me crazy. And so, verse 24, Jesus answers her. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Okay. Listen, woman. 
I'm here for the people of Israel. You don't have a claim here, basically, is what Jesus is saying. But she persists. She came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered. Now, this is where we are just, what is happening? It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Jesus is calling her a dog. He is saying, listen, it's not right for me to take the bread that is for the children and feed the dogs with it. You, you, you are essentially a dog to me, is, is what is happening. And you might think, wow, that is harsh. That is just nasty. But of course, Jesus knows what's happening. And we see this beautiful um, picture of, of the gospel spreading to the other nations and what happens next. In verse 27, she says, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And there you see the faith of this woman, the humility. I'm, I'm okay with, with acknowledging I am nothing. I don't deserve any kindness from you, Lord Jesus. But I would happily have a few crumbs that you might cast my way. And Jesus answers her, Oh woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. What has happened? The gospel is now sh is shifting. And Jesus, really plowing the way here, begins extending the, the, the gospel, the call, the, the, the forgiveness and, and kindness of God to the non-Jewish people. And in many ways, this was what outraged the Jews severely, was how Jesus seemed to ignore the Jewish customs and traditions. So, one final passage, and I think we'll tie this all together. As we understand this world language oftentimes in the scripture. Um, it is in reference to this reality that the gospel has gone to the nations. In John 11, uh, again, we see this playing out. And... We have the, the religious leaders gathering together to plot at how they might destroy Christ. And uh, in the midst of that plotting, the high priest Caiaphas prophesies. So there's many people believing in verse 45 of John 11. Um, they'd seen the great miracles that he'd done. And... The chief priests and the Pharisees in verse 47 are gathering and they're saying, okay, what are we going to do? If this continues, everyone is going to believe in him. And the Romans will come and they'll take away both our place and our nation. So they're just self-preservation. They're just worried about, about this Jesus guy. He's really rocking the boat and I don't like this. It's going to mess things up. What are we going to do? And then Caiaphas, who's the high priest said, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And then John gives a little commentary in verse 51 about this whole, uh, this whole situation that unfolded. He said in verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation so there it is. There's the nation of Israel. He's going to die for his people. He's going to die for the nation. But then John says, And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And there you have it. 
This redemption is not only for the Jews, but it is for the whole world. It is for all people. Not meaning that every person is going to be saved, but that every nation will be impacted by the gospel and that God has children scattered outside of the fold of Israel that through the gospel they will be gathered into one, one body, um, one uh, church in that sense. So those are a couple ways that uh, I think are helpful as we try to understand the work of Christ on the cross Um, the definite atonement that he accomplished for the elect, and yet we see this universal uh, language used to remind us the gospel is for all people, it is to go out to every nation. We prayed this morning for a couple translating scriptures in Ethiopia. We're to continue laboring um, on those fronts for the gospel because it's for all people, and yet we know that Only those who repent and believe will be forgiven. The cross is only effective for those who receive the gift, who respond to the gospel. And we can only respond to the gospel as the gospel is proclaimed and the Spirit of God works a work in us according to His sovereign will. And, um, you know, we don't need to worry ourselves a lot with, well, is this person one of God's elect? Is this person one of God's elect? I don't know. Maybe I should focus my energy here. No, we just, we just share the gospel. We just prayerfully move through life. Um, as we are going, we are making disciples and trusting God to save whom he will save. And so let us um, rejoice in these things. And um, we'll just pause for a moment. Are there any questions as, uh, before I close in prayer, any questions about that? I know it was a lot of information. may have felt more like a seminary class this morning a little bit, but um, it, really good stuff to work through. Questions about that? Comments? I know it was a lot. <laughs> Don't be shy. Or if something was very unclear, I could try to restate it to be clear. Hello. Hello. Okay. Let's pray. And then I hope we can have some good discussion after as well. And, um, yes, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word once again. And... God, we are reminded as we consider these things how limited we are in our knowledge. And Lord, even a sense of longing for eternity that that it will be, um, yes, a time of of no more sickness, no more pain, no more crying. It will be a time of of, uh, glorified bodies and all all of these wonderful things. But Lord, most of all, it will be a time of continuing to grow in the knowledge of you and Lord, to search out the beauty and the wonders of Christ and what he has done for us. And so I pray, God, that that pursuit would be, uh, Lord, of highest priority now in our lives. Amidst the busyness and working that we continue to pursue you. And thank you for the patience of this congregation. And Lord, that we would not use these things as a, a means to win arguments or to 
to get into arguments, Lord, but most of all, that it would, uh, Lord, cause us to be steadfast and confident in the work that you've given us, and unmovable, Lord, um, not doubting, but sure that you are going to finish what you have begun, and that we would find rest in that truth. We pray this now, in Jesus' name, amen. And by faith we'll walk as you walk with us. Speak, Thanks for listening to this sermon. We pray that you are built up and encouraged in your faith and pointed to Christ, our glorious Savior. If you'd like to know more about Redeeming Grace Bible Church, you can find us online at www.redeeminggracechurch.ca or you could write to us at redeeminggracebiblechurch at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you to answer any questions that you might have. God bless you.